So we, we have been walking through the covenants in the Old Testament and, and seeing how they point, point forward to Jesus. And um, with that in mind, th- this picture of Advent was really something that they anticipated throughout the Old Testament. They were looking for the arrival or the coming of the Lord's Messiah. And so we've been celebrating this and really just praising God for the way that he has shown himself faithful through this. And so we've looked at the Old Testament covenants, how they set up for Jesus Christ. We went through Adam, um, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and how God was making a way of redemption through each of the promises and covenants he made with them. We're going to explore today the Davidic covenant, um, God's covenant with David, King David. And if you remember, a covenant is basically an agreement where it's between two parties where, where both, one or both of them are making a promise under oath saying, I'm going to do these things. And they make these certain promises and that are connected together. One of the things we looked at last week, the Mosaic Covenant is a bilateral covenant. A bilateral means that it's conditional. Today, we're looking at a unilateral covenant. It's something that God is saying, I'm going to do. You don't have to do anything, but I'm letting you know I'm going to do this through you. And so that's a powerful piece. But I want to give you a bit of background before we get to the, the covenant with David. So how we got here, if you remember last week with Moses, that incredible covenant, we know the Ten Commandments, the law came out of that. But what, what Moses did right, there were a lot of things he did right. One of the things he did right was he invested and developed, basically developed Joshua under his leadership. So as he was leading, he had Joshua with him, and he would give opportunities for Joshua to lead out, and he, he would lead. And then when Moses died, um, God basically called Joshua to lead from that point forward and led his people into the promised land, and that was great. And even though Joshua had a lot of great things about him, one of the areas where he kind of didn't do as well as he could have was he wasn't developing a leader under him to take over after he was done leading. And so after they dispersed into the, their, their lands, the land was divided between the 12 tribes. That was it, right? And so then we get to the book of Judges. And if you've seen this, read through the book of Judges, they have 12 judges that are kind of focused on there. And they had a cycle that each of them went through, okay? They, they started out where the people of God were obedient and they were kind of following through. This is what God, God's word says, I'm going to do it. And then they went through a season of disobedience. And then God would bring as a form of discipline, foreign oppression, and they would come in. And then the people of God would repent for a bit and cry for deliverance. God would bring a deliverer, which was a judge to deliver them from whatever oppression was happening. And then they would have military victory. And then they would start off and they would be obedient again. Things were great again. Then they would disobey again. And it just kept going. Right? And that was the problem. And they just had a downward spiral of morality. And they just kept going back to it. The last sentence of the book of Judges says this. If you have your Bibles, check this out with me. Judges chapter 21 in verse 25 says this. In those days, there was no king in Israel. There was nobody on the throne. And notice this detail. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And if you've read the book of Judges, there are some crazy things that people were doing and justifying it. I mean, we, we've seen some crazy things in our day, but they were doing some banana things. Like, yeah, kids in here. So crazy, just trust me. And, and what was crazy is they felt like it was the right thing to do. And I know that's nothing like today where people, you know, do what is right in their own eyes. I mean, those guys were crazy, not us. Anyways, so totally them. But I want us to catch this. The people of Israel went, went through this season where they did what was right in their own eyes because there was nobody leading them. They had no leader. 
And they, they cried out to God, and they're talking to Samuel, and, and this is in 1 Samuel chapter 8. Like, look, would you just give us a king so that we could, listen to this detail, be like the other nations. We just want to be like everybody else. We don't want no prophet who represents God, who, who is led from God to do this leading over us. We want to be like the other nations. Give us a king so we can be like them. And so in 1 Samuel chapter 8, it says this, And the Lord said to Samuel, Samuel was God's um, prophet. He said to Samuel, Obey, listen to this phrase, their voice. Do what they want you to do. Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel said to the men of Israel, Go every man to his city. And then they established a king. And this is how they did it. They got this guy who looked the part. He was tall and handsome. Right? He, he was pretty, you know, built and, and put together. He was a decent leader of his family, of his particular tribe. Um, and he looked like he could fight. He could take down some people. So they're like, this has got to be the guy. And so it was the people's choice, and it was their own kingdom they wanted to lead out, and they did not want to wait for God. And they got what they wanted, a king who was not submitted to the Lord. And then turn over to chapter 16 of 1 Samuel. Notice this with me. It says, the Lord said to Samuel, his prophet, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from both being king over Israel? And so this is what, what he says, fill your horn with oil. He would, they, they would take a ram's horn and fill it with oil and go, and I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I provided, listen to this detail from the Lord, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. So he's like, you get, the people wanted Saul, give them their king, what they wanted. We'll show how it's going to fail. And then now he says to Samuel, what I want you to do is find the king that I have for myself, and I want you to set him apart. And so he goes over to Jesse's house and, and says, Jesse, bring out your sons. And so he kind of sits there, and this is just me kind of imagining this. He's sitting there laid back on the couch, and he's watching as Jesse's sons kind of parade through like a little beauty pageant. And they hit the runway on the catwalk. They're doing their thing on the catwalk. Anyways, so that's just me. Maybe you're not old enough. And they're walking through. After the first one goes through, yeah, it's like this guy. This is terrible. After the first one goes through, it's like Samuel sits up in his seat. And he's thinking, this must be the one. And God reminds him in that moment. He's like, look. Man looks on the outward appearance, but it's the Lord who looks on the heart. This isn't him. And the rest of the boys go through. And Samuel, thinking that he, he misheard God, goes to Jesse and says, is this all your sons? He's like, no, actually, we've got one we didn't even want to bring in. He's a ruddy little boy, and he's out with the sheep. Bring him in. And that's the one that God wanted, which, by the way, is an incredible lesson about how God chooses what we would never choose. In fact, the gospel is a picture of that, right? That God would send his son to die on a cross for sinful people like you and me. First Corinthians says that that's foolishness to the world, but for those who are being saved, that is the power of God among us. And so this is just another picture of that. And so we see a few things about David. You know, in this particular call that God is choosing him, he's a man of character. Later in, in chapter 16 of 1 Samuel, we see that he's playing music and, and actually kind of calming King Saul down. And he's a man of worship. He's a man of character. He's a man of worship of God. And then the next chapter, he, he goes and takes down Goliath. 
And we see in this picture that not only is he a man of character, a man of worship, but he's also a man of faith. He's willing to go before this giant to take him down because he knows that the Lord has his back. And so he gets anointed king in in 1 Samuel 16, but it's about 15 years later after his being anointed king that David actually is the king and brings the Ark of the Covenant. So that's in 2 Samuel chapter 6. and chapter 7, he's already bring, brought the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, and he's thinking, like, you know what? God has provided for this for, for me. I've got, I've got an incredible house, but the Lord's presence, the Ark of the Covenant represented God's presence, like, is in a, t- a tent. It's out there in a tent, and I've got this nice house. So I've got to do something about this. And so he says, you know what? I'm going to build God a house. It's going to be great. And then God tells Nathan, who, who was now David's prophet, like Samuel was for Saul, he's like, look, tell him, I don't want that. Like, I, I, I've been with my people through a tent this whole time. I've been protecting them this whole time. I don't need you to build that for me. This isn't your kingdom. This is my kingdom. And I want you to know that I'm going to do something among you that you could never do for yourselves because this is my kingdom. And so if you would look with me at 2 Samuel Chapter 7, and we're going to skip down to the the middle part of verse 11. Notice this. It says, Moreover, moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. Notice this, verse 15. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. Not, not from him. Now, real quick, that phrase, steadfast love, if you remember that covenant word we said for God's covenant faithfulness and covenant love is the word hesed. That's this word right here, the steadfast love of the Lord will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. He says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Now, here's what's been neat so far. He's been interchanging between King Solomon the biological son, like direct biological son of David, okay? Which down the line, several generations, Jesus will be from his line as well. But the next one in line, and Solomon will see, as you keep reading, will build a, a basically this amazing temple for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Lord. And it was awesome and immaculate. Had all these details and nuance to it. But he died. So keep reading. He says, your throne, he says, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. His throne, the, the, the reality of David's throne will last forever. And this is a picture of the messianic hope. This is a picture of the Christ, Jesus, coming and fulfilling this word of the line of David, inheriting the throne. Verse 17 In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke. To David. But here's the, the beauty. Here's the part we need to like listen to and tune into. Is that God wanted David to keep in mind whose kingdom it is. David wanted to build him a, a, a temple, and God's like, nope, not you. It's not about you. 
This is about me. This kingdom that you're sitting on the throne of is my kingdom. You represent me. I just want to just lean in for a second because many of us forget that we are serving God's kingdom. Your existence, the reason that God is generous and gives you air in your lungs is for his glory, for his renown, for his name's sake. And so when we forget that, what usually happens is either we sell out and say, no, we don't want to follow his kingdom anymore, or we burn out because we try to do it on our own. And I don't know about you, but I've experienced a whole lot of burnout. And there have been moments where I've been tempted to sell out because I've made it about me. This kingdom that he's calling him to is not about David. It's about his kingdom. And I think many of us in this room, especially in a season like this, where we're kind of like vulnerable with the reality of Christmas coming in less than a week, like we need to know that this is not our kingdom. This is his. With this picture here, God was establishing an everlasting throne for his, himself, not David, an everlasting kingdom. God was establishing through this promise a human, one man standing between God and his people. And it would be, it would be Jesus. We see this. Now, what's incredible here is if you keep going through um, 2 Samuel, you look in, in the Kings and Chronicles, in each case, David becomes the paradigm for every king following him. Like every king is from that point forward compared to whether or not they were like David, a person of character, a person of worship, right, a person of faith. There's only a couple of kings that actually got like compared in the positive to David. And then we pick up with this incredible prophecy in Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, many of us know this passage of Scripture because of this season of the year. And so you're going to hear this like, oh, it's Christmas. I know this passage, right? Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Listen to this. It's for to us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Incredible picture, right? That this son, this child that's going to be born, is going to be a wonderful counselor. He's going to bring true wisdom. He's going to help us discern right from wrong, right? This, this child is going to be one called Mighty God. It's going to be basically the power of God is going to be among this one. Everlasting Father, one who is eternal, one that doesn't have an end in sight, and one who is a prince of peace. Each of us desires some kind of like conflict-less life, and the only place we can find it is through this prince of peace. And it says, of the increase of his government and of the peace, there will be no end. It will continue to grow and mount up. There will be no end. And notice this detail, and this is where things begin to merge on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. I love this picture of God's justice and his righteousness will be established from that point and forevermore. And notice this last sentence, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This prophetic work, this carrying on of the merging of the promise um, to David that's going to be found in the person and work of Jesus. It says the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this very thing. 
And what happened is the people of God waited for centuries for God to do this, for God to establish this. And then there were some people who were faithful, who really anticipated and waited and longed for this to take place. And then we pick up in the book of Luke, and we see this, this little teenage girl is hearing a word from the Lord. In Luke chapter 1, verse 31, it says this. It says, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, which means the Lord saves. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father. Here it is, David. This is the fulfillment. And he will reign over the house of Jacob. Now, if you remember back in the book of Genesis, after Jacob, he wrestled the, the angel and God gave him a new name, a blessing, and he gave his name, the name Israel. And it shall reign over the house of Israel, over Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. So what we heard in Isaiah 9, what we heard in 2 Samuel 7 with David, like there's going to be this forever kingdom that God is establishing through this child that this teenage girl would bear. Incredible. And that baby goes on to live a sinless life, one filled with righteousness. And that baby ends up growing up to a place where he is carrying the cross that you and I deserve. And he dies there. By God's grace, through the power of his spirit, he is raised from the dead three days later. And then for 40 days, the resurrection of Christ is exposed to many people. And then he ascends into heaven. After that, the spirit of God comes down, which is amazing. So we pick up in Acts chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to see this with me. I want you to see this fulfillment that, that really Peter is talking about, which is kind of neat to think about. Because if there's any guy in Scripture that many of us, especially men, really identify with, because we may overspeak or write checks that we can't cash with our lips necessarily, um, it's the Apostle Peter. And this is like us, someone who says a lot. But this, in this occasion, the Spirit of God is so filling him that he is preaching this incredible word. So Acts chapter 2, verse 22, look at, listen to this. And I want you to see the first phrase, men of Israel. Remember who's going to reign over the, the men of Israel, over the house of Israel, over the house of Jacob. It was this Jesus, this baby that was born here to this teenager. Now, on the other side of it, he says this, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. He's like, look, God did these amazing things through him, used him, empowered him so that you would know that he was from God. And then he says, he did it in your midst, and you yourselves know this. Like, you've seen it. You've heard about it. Everybody saw it. Verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up. 
You need to know he was dead. He was crucified. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Which, by the way, let me, let me replay this because when I, I read this earlier, same thing happened. Um, imagine Peter is preaching this, and there are people who have already witnessed the resurrection of Jesus, right? Already experienced the work of the Spirit of God among them. And when they hear this, I'm telling you, quietness or silence was not the response. Okay? You guys with me? Did, did you get my hint? Okay. Let's try this again. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God was, uh, foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death. Now, real quick, the pangs of death, the effects of sin, the curse that you've experienced, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Amen. All two of you. Like, Like, think about this. And he says this among them. And this is a guy that just, like, weeks earlier, just weeks earlier, denied that he was even with Jesus. And now he's saying, like, look, people, you sent him to the cross. He died, but he couldn't be held by death. See, you see the power there. And he's living proof of it. Because that resurrected Jesus reinstated him and said, I know what you did was wrong, but you need to know that I believe in you more than you believe in yourself. Will you feed my sheep? And he gives him his spirit, and he's preaching this, and he's feeding. Notice verse 25. Like this is where the rubber's meeting the road, right? This is where, where Peter is connecting dots what he knew of being taught as a little kid about King David and what was promised to King David, he got to see in the person and work of Jesus himself. And he says this, for David says concerning him. David was thinking he was talking about himself, Peter says, but he was not. He was talking about this one to come. Notice this. He says, I saw the Lord always before me, David said, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. And so he gives this incredible quote from David saying that God will not let these things happen to him. And this is what Peter says in response. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and he was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's probably like pointing to where it's at. He's buried right over there. You know it. You've you've walked by his tomb. He says, verse 30, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn to him an oath, right, to him that he would set One of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Like, you know it, you saw it, you know that he did this. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. He's like, look, 
that was not about David. David was prophesying about one who would come from his line. He was talking about Jesus. And you need to know that that same Holy Spirit that raised him from the dead is with us. And as a result of that, you see it. You feel his presence here. It's his spirit that is among us that you are seeing and hearing right now. And then he says, verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And then Peter looks back at them after quoting this text, and he says, Let all the house of Israel know, therefore, for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, which means he is Lord and he is the anointed one of God, this Jesus whom you crucified. And he gives them the gospel. The church where I grew up, this is where Pastor John would give you know, what we call the, the invitation. And he would step down stage, and he would stand right in front of his pulpit. And we play just as I am. Miss Annette is over here. And he'd say, one more stanza, one more stanza. Probably doing that today. He's still pastor of that church, which is crazy. One more stanza. And this is the invitation. And what he's saying is, you guys need to know that Jesus is the true king. Jesus is the one who rightly sits on the throne. And if you were there, how would you respond? Is he done yet? Because it's time for lunch. That's not how they responded. Notice verse 37 with me. Now, when they heard this, when it like sinked in, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what do we do? What shall we do? Like we get it. We're guilty. We need this. What do we do? Peter said to them, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of, of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He said, look, you've been on your throne way too long. Get off the throne. That's repentance. Put Jesus where he belongs. You get off the throne. Put him on the throne. That's where he belongs. You don't belong there. And be baptized. Last week, like, we had two women get baptized in the 930 and a little guy like in the 11, and it was remarkable, and it's so exciting. And that's just a picture of this. But that's one thing, but living a life daily of repentance, of putting Jesus on the throne, taking yourself off the throne, is our commitment. And the Holy Spirit of God empowering us, leading us, giving us what we need in, in conviction and ability to do what he's called us to do. Verse 39, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. And notice this, everyone, it's for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Like this gospel, if you are near, this gospel's for you. If you are far off and you think that you are so broken, so marred, you've sinned so bad that there's no way, it's for you. This gospel's for you, he says. 
And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation, which means receive this gift of Jesus. So those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they were just coming there just to do like a Jewish festival. And the Spirit of God poured out. And there's this guy named Peter that started preaching. And things went bananas. And the next day, after they they came to faith in Jesus, life went back normal for them. That's not what it says either. In fact, check this, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Notice this, I love this. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. Like they're sitting there, and they're just committed to knowing the word of God more and more. The spirit of God has drawn these people who used to be like strangers or maybe even enemies with one another because of where they're from. And all of a sudden, they're just sitting there, and they're engaged in the word of God to the point where it is like drawing them nearer to each other. And and all of a sudden, these signs and wonders revealing God's spirit is among them, and they're in awe of it. Like, when, when I see grown women coming to faith in Jesus and getting baptized, I'm in awe of that. I can understand kids because they are full of faith, full of trust. But adults, and some of you in here know what I'm talking about because you're those, those people who've been so calloused by the world that it would have to be a work and miracle of God for you to repent and turn to him. And I'm praying it does. And all fell among them. They couldn't believe it. These signs and wonders. Keep, keep ch- checking this. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They're sitting there saying, you mean to tell me that the Spirit of God is doing this in your life? You won't believe it. He's doing this in my life too. I, you know, I, before, like weeks ago, I didn't even believe that God could do this. And look what he's doing in us. And they're just sharing these stories and testimonies of faith back and forth. And verse 45, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing uh, the proceeds of all as any had need. And they were like, look, I noticed that, that you're not able to eat and your kids aren't able to eat. I want, I, let me sell this so that I can make sure that your kids never go hungry. They're loving each other in the fellowship. They're, they're having incredible community. And notice what it's the heart of it. At the heart of this incredible community is the one who is truly on the throne, Jesus. They weren't thinking about putting themselves on the throne, hoarding for themselves. They were having Jesus on the throne, and as a result, they could share anything they had to anyone who needed it. And day by day, attending the temple together, they were worshiping together and breaking bread in their homes. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, here's what's crazy. You guys got to witness at the beginning, and this wasn't like planned or anything like that, the Lipscombs. 
when I first came here, within my first year, we were doing a fundraiser for the Lipscombs. It used to be the GSM room, but now it's the Grace Kids room. We had an auction for stuff so that they could raise money to adopt a baby. And I don't know if you saw her, but I saw her. They were holding one. And so the reason why that boy was melted and crying up here is because he got to see signs and wonders of God's spirit in people's lives. And we prayed for and got to witness this baby coming to be because they biologically couldn't have one. So they adopted this sweet baby that we as a body got to be part of and sharing that story. And so them launching from our church is a big deal. But here's what's crazy that, that we didn't know, even bigger than that, is in the 930 hour, a guy who leads a camp in Louisiana that's an hour and a half away from him, didn't want to be here today, but just came, was like, wait a minute, you're leading a camp in, in Louisiana. I'm leading a camp in Louisiana. Holy moly, we need to know each other. Last service, true story. Okay? Didn't want to be here. I say all this to say, you have no idea. Then we get a couple standing right here talking about re-engage and experience community with each other, celebrating the work of God. And they've got an incredible story of what God's done in their life through this community. And all of what I want, to, I want you to see is your brother who just wants you to just see it, is do you realize when we invite you to re-engage, when we invite you to be part of a small group, it's not so that we can pat ourselves on the back. It is not about us. We want you to experience the fruit of the kingdom right here, right now. That's, what, that's our win, is that you get to experience this life too. You get to experience people praying for you, seeing your need, meeting your need. You get to experience other people's needs and meeting their needs. That, does that make sense? Like, we're not trying to conjure up something so we feel good about ourselves. Our win is when you are equipped for the work of ministry. That's our win. That's our victory dance. It's when you are part of ministry and you're doing life so much so that the lives around you are changed. And so we're going to keep inviting you to re-engage. We're going to keep inviting you to be part of a, a Sunday school class or a small group that meets in homes because we know when you do, your life will change. And here's what's crazy. Did you notice that little last detail? Because the people of God were in community, God used that and the way lives were being changed for them. And day by day, people continue to get saved too. It's like its own purpose. <laughs> and I say that joking. And let me, let me wrap this. Look. And I joked about Second row of First Baptist Church Clearwater, not the new building, but the old building. Red carpet, carpeted pews. And, and teenage Lewis would sit in the corner by the wall at the second pew. And I would pray when John would, would make the invitation call every Sunday. Teenage Lewis was weeping and asking God to save souls. Because I believed he can, he could, and I still do. And 30 plus years removed from that kid, like I, I still want to see it. I want to see people come to Jesus and see their lives transformed. 
And this wasn't a kid that was raised by parents who loved Jesus. That's not my story. This is, this is a kid who had adult people who I saw used to live this way. Their lives were transformed, and they invested into me. And so I'm like, I want people to be like that. And so I prayed. And I would pray. And, and when, when there would be a lady come forward, and, and Martha Boland, John's wife, would, he would call her. He's like, I can't talk to this woman. you got to talk to her. And, and she would lead him to the Lord. I'm telling you. What if we were that community? That each week we would just like see the Spirit of God move because we love each other so much that we're involved in little pockets of discipleship, whether we engage or Sunday school or our group settings at homes, and we were just praying with each other, seeking each other, and, and encouraging and praying for lost people that live among us, that we would just so want them to know this Jesus that has changed us. What if we lived? what we believed. This city would be different. I promise you that. Let me pray. Father, in Jesus' name, I I thank you for the work of your hand. I thank you for being generous with your spirit. I thank you for reminding us that Jesus is the true king on the throne. It's not David, and it sure isn't us. And like the people asked Peter, what should we do? Help us repent. Help us identify with the work that you've done. Help us be filled with your spirit. We need you. And Lord, I pray that if there's any space in our lives where we're not completely submitted to you and, and, and we, we just don't care about community, Lord, I pray that you would just convict us of that sin. We're made for this. We're made for community. So, Father, I pray that your spirit would do an uncommon work and draw us to a place where we confess this sin, we repent, and, Lord God, we chase after you, but we chase after you with each other. Lord, we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, we love you. It is our joy that we get to serve alongside of you. Um, look for information about, um, about say, Good Friday services, but I meant Christmas Eve services. I'm way off. Apparently, my calendar is broke. That's Good Friday. Yeah, Good Friday. Too. Yeah, right. So Christmas Eve. Um, and then also, we will have service next Sunday. It's going to be a really unique Sunday, and I'm excited for it. I hope you get to come. We love you. Have a good week.